0: The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism Abu Dhabi.
1: Sadiaq Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi. Proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up...
0: That comes from kind of understanding this really dynamic and really fascinating ecosystem, which is sort of unlike anything else that's ever been on planet Earth. We kind of create these weird ecosystems and cities that are full of fascination.
1: Nature and our cities are deeply connected, but as urban areas grow how can we ensure that this link is not severed? This week, we're in Bangkok for an ode to public spaces on a grand scale as we explore one of the Thai capital's newly opened forest parks. We're also in the United States, where a hiking trail skirting downtown Philadelphia serves as a reminder to invest in green spaces. And we also sit down with the author, Ben Wilson, to talk about his new book, Urban Jungle, Wilding the City examining the past, present and future relationship between cities and nature. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We begin this week's episode in Thailand. Local authorities in Bangkok have been on a quest to turn it into a greener city. Recently, the Metropolitan Administration has partnered with civil society and the private sector to help turn unused land into small pocket parks. And while this is a much welcomed initiative, it's important that the city continues to invest in developing public green spaces on a grand scale too. Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers, paid a visit to the recently opened Benjakitti Forest Park in Bangkok and sent us this report.
2: On a recent Sunday afternoon, I set off with my family to explore Benjakitti Forest Park, a vast open space in Bangkok which opened to the public last year. We only arrived in the Thai capital a few months ago after relocating from Hong Kong, but even in that short space of time, I have already lost count of the number of conversations I've had with people who have been blown away by the addition of this giant and genuine green space in the centre of one of Asia's most chaotic cities. Bangkokians can't quite believe that this impressive civic project actually came to fruition in their own backyard. And after spending a few hours exploring the park, it is easy to see why. This is a park in the old-fashioned sense of the word. Large enough to get lost in, wild in places manicured in others, with kilometres of bike paths, jogging routes, and very real nature at the heart of it. Calling Ben Chikiti Forest Park a new green lung for Bangkok, is not only an accurate reflection of its scale, but a nod to the land's previous tenants, a state-owned tobacco company with a monopoly on rolling cigarettes in Thailand. We spent hours admiring the tropical flowers, spotting squirrels, bouncing a ball back and forth, walking along the elevated walkways, marvelling at the wetlands, and swapping smiles with the groups of university students, taking graduation photos in their colourful gowns. A connecting pedestrian bridge links Bangkok's newest major park with its oldest, Lumpini, which is preparing to celebrate its centenary in 2025. In Lumpini, we had a picnic in front of the bandstand, and as the sun began to set, we listened to several singers and guitar bands belt out uplifting and whimsical Thai pop. The whole experience took me back to my own childhood, and what I originally understood to be the definition of a park. A large, green, public space populated with trees, usually a bit of water, and involving some form of sport or recreation. A place to while away the day, rather than simply pass through while admiring the new shrubbery. I like a pocket park as much as the next guy. But Benja Kitty made me wonder if there is an opportunity cost to the current global scramble to find every small, vacant plot of irregular land on the side of a canal under an overpass or on top of an abandoned railway line, and turn them into slithers of green space? How many of these linear parks actually provide room for play, or even a picnic? And how many should more accurately be described on Google Maps as a pedestrianised walkway? I head to the High Line each time I'm in New York, for a stroll through Chelsea with friends, but I tell my kid to leave his football behind. Community leaders and NGOs should of course continue with these local interventions, But at the city or national level, we should still be encouraging our leaders to reach for the high-hanging fruit, and incentivize large landowners with less need for physical office space to donate large tracts of land to the city, not just money. This is especially important in Asian cities, where big parks are few and far between. Ben Forest Park may have taken 30 years to get to this point, but for green urbanism of this scale, I'd say it's definitely been worth the wait. For Monocle in Bangkok, I'm James Chambers.
1: Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers there, musing on the joys of exploring nature within our cities. Growth and rapid urbanisation might be slowly edging our cities to become more separated from the natural world. But... If there's one thing we've learned here on The Urbanist over the years, it's that nature and cities are intrinsically connected. This was also the starting point for Urban Jungle, Wilding the City, the new book by author Ben Wilson. By delving into the past, he's been able to re-examine urban landscapes around the world and verify that, in fact, nature has always been at the heart of what makes a city. And with climate change and extreme weather events only becoming more common, Could nature hold the solution to ensure that our cities survive? Well, I'm happy to say that Ben joins me now. Ben, welcome back to The Urbanist. Let's start exactly with that point. In the past, it seems there was much less of a divide between the urban world and nature. Can you tell us what it was like back then?
0: You know, I think it's something that's almost written out of history of cities because we're obviously much more interested in the kind of the human activity in a way. And so this is part of the point of the book, really, is to look at how cities interact with their environment across time. And it's a very kind of fast changing, evolving thing, the history of cities and ecosystems. I mean, one example I'd give is London. Up until the Middle Ages, it was surrounded not by fields, but by forests. So there was a kind of wild landscape on the edge of London. And that's because cities needed natural resources and particularly wood for fires, for industry, for, you know, smithies and for building purposes. So having large forests was really important. And London lost its forests quite early because it moved to coal, which is a forerunner of things to come. Whereas on continental Europe, whilst forests are being cut down in the countryside, they're actually growing on the margins of cities. Cities really, really needed, you know, there was a much more sort of organic society. And it's really the Industrial Revolution that kind of changes that. So that there 's a sort of idea of a porousness between city, a compact kind of medieval or early modern city and its surrounding countryside and, and cities often gave way to kind of wildness, not to kind of Gainsborough landscape of fields, and that these were resources for people to go and glean firewood to graze animals, and to go for recreation in areas which had a kind of character of wildness
1: it 's interesting because also as this kind of world of forest on the doorstep retreats it leaves behind these tendrils of vegetation, of scruffiness, of urban mess that also don't don't get to last long because city officials, especially in the West, they've become a bit more prim and people want these vestiges of scruffy, of scraps of land to be mown and, and be more kempt, as it were.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think cities are really interesting from an ecological point of view because all the industry, all the kind of things that come into the city bring seeds and packing cases, Things that come with trade, breweries, things like that, spread their seeds out. So, what you get in cities is seeds that come from all around the world. You get a very fast-changing thing, but it leaves a kind of scruffiness. A kind of you know things that people saw, which were once useful. I think this is part of the history: plants that once people used in the pot suddenly become sort of signs of neglect and dereliction. And I think that's very much part and parcel with how we kind of saw nature in the cities. That what was a resource becomes highly polluted disease-ridden animals in cities, all the sort of pigs and horses and things like that spread zoonotic diseases. And there is a movement in cities that were have these very degraded ecosystems, especially in the 19th century after industrialization. There's a desire to sort of strip out nature. And if you think about, you know, manifestations of nature in the city from the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, onwards is a kind of perfected nature a kind of nature that's kind sort of sealed off from its kind of wildness and kind of made not urban but kind of urbane nature a kind you know where you can control it behind the kind of railings of a park where you know you get a highly idealized view of kind of nature perfected and tidied up and a kind of a sort of horror of what's seen as plants of dereliction which of course are plants that we kind of bring with us and kind of thrive in building sites neglected areas of which there are huge amounts in cities you know you take away the kind of the human activity and the places sort of well-trodden and well-driven and there's vast areas of kind of marginal land which kind of teems of nature but I guess it's sort of built into our cultures that we see those things as sort of symbolizing not the abundance of nature but a kind of social breakdown
1: I guess even now when we think of rewilding our cities of the need for green space, we tend to think of the, the the new park practitioners, the people who are building public realm that looks probably quite nice. But what's fascinating in your book is you, you give a, the great example of what's happened in the areas around LaGuardia and JFK in New York, where you'll never regain what was lost in the draining of swamplands. But actually, nature does take hold even on top of actually rather polluted soil and chaos and maybe that if we find some acceptance of this do you think that's a way of us moving forwards
0: the great kind of pioneering studies of urban ecology really come from the second world war when there was huge amounts of destruction in cities and areas that people had seen as very sterile suddenly kind of bloom with life and of course that nature was always there but it because it symbolizes kind of recovery from a disaster that people were suddenly interested. Berlin's a good example because it, you know, the realities of the Cold War meant it was sealed off. So people went to study the kind of very fast changing kind of nature that manifests itself in cities and in sort of neglected sites. And the kind of plants that kind of are able to survive disasters of which the city could be seen as, as a disaster for nature. But nonetheless, there are plants that come and. And exist amongst us. Now, whether we can kind of get rid of our kind of aesthetic preferences for the kind of neat, regulated almost sanitized kind of city and coexist or learn again to coexist with kind of wildness in cities is entirely up to us. But we know the kind of plants from all these studies from the Second World War onwards, we know the kind of plants and also animals that can live with us. And there's lots of examples where you can create urban meadows based, you know, on our sort of ecological knowledge of what thrives in cities and try and make it a kind of beautiful landscape. All those kind of grass verges that could be converted into sort of micro meadows or even, you know, tolerating building sites. You know, the cities are in a constant state of metamorphosis know, there's lots and lots of building sites left over. In the Netherlands, they kind of incentivize what they call temporary nature, where they let A building site lay fallow for a few years because that's when you get a sort of fast succession of plants the other way to look at it is we kind of need these plants as a way of kind of dealing with climate change and the flooding of cities that we need to kind of break up the kind of the hard surface of cities to find places for water to go and these kind of tough urban plants that have adapted themselves to live with us or have come across the world and kind of seen the city as an opportunity they're the kind of plants that actually will fill those gaps and if we manage it sounds ironic you know or contradictory but the idea of kind of managed wildness is something that people are experimenting with and finding new places in cities including on rooftops you know in Australia they they're sort of wilding All those huge amount of area, which is sort of redundant in a way, which is the kind of areas alongside roads and roundabouts and things like that. It's just, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do, I think, in cities is or people who are far sighted is to exploit these empty spaces, these uh, edges that kind of run alongside our activities and create these kind of wonderful marginal land, which crisscross the city like a
1: kind of green grid. So Ben, we should jump to the heart of the book. So the, I presume the, the reason that you felt the need for this book to be written is because you see in these marginal lands, in the choices we're making now, and by referencing history, we could make some wise decisions about how we, as you say, tackle climate change, tackle the runoff water, tackle flooding. Is there embedded, do you think, in your book, a bit of a manifesto about how we go forwards in consideration of, of greenery, of nature, of, of wildness in our cities?
0: Yeah, I hope so. I hope I want to sort of change, make people see cities in a different way and sort of discover the nature that does sort of exist in the cracks of the concrete or in, in unlikely places. And the more you look, the more you see. But you're right. It, there is a sort of urgency about this, I think, which people are waking up to. Luckily, that ecosystems in cities are great regulators of the microclimate and trees cool us down, shade us. We need more kind of wetlands and renaturalised rivers at a time when there's higher rainfall. And you know, that's in, in other countries, there are lots of other reasons to have nature in cities as air filters to prevent desertification and sort of lots of the sort of destructive things that cities do to the environment. Here's a way to kind of protect ourselves. So I, I always think that kind of when I started writing about cities, you kind of almost think that the future of the cities is going to be very high tech, sort of digital, smart cities, and things like that. But I think that really the, the image of the city of the future is one where there is a kind of intertwining of, of natural processes and, and our own activities. And, And I think what the history shows and why I wanted to approach it from a historical point of view is that cities are always adapting, but there's a constant kind of change and flux in the urban ecosystem. The more we understand it, the more we understand it from a historical perspective, but also how that dovetails with our own need for adapting cities to the realities of climate change, is that we do have a toolkit and a way of knowing how to do it and what plants thrive, what animals can coexist and what little interventions we can make to sort of open up the city to nature. You know, during the lockdowns, when things quietened down, animals came back pretty quickly. In some countries, they have rope bridges that allow primates to navigate the city, or in Australia, creating underpasses for koalas. There's all kinds of ways that we can... Relatively cheaply, and in a way that satisfies our own craving for nature, makes cities entirely different. It just takes sort of you know a willingness for us to do it, and that comes from kind of understanding this really dynamic and really fascinating ecosystem, which is sort of unlike anything else that's ever been on planet Earth. We kind of create these weird ecosystems and cities that are full of fascination, but we can do a hell of a lot more. I mean, I think that's the message of the book: is that. This is a real sort of experimental phase where we can really understand and and reimagine the city in the time of climate change.
1: It was interesting reading the book, though, Ben, because there's lots of points where you walk us up to information that you suddenly realise there are more complicated decisions to be made. For example, you might just imagine that you step back and let nature take over. Well, oddly, what may win in that battle is a vine or a a creeper that kills all else before it. Or you imagine that the existing part network will be robust in helping us defend ourselves, but actually many of them are just parched grass come summer and don't support much habitat for animals and things. And the other fascinating thing was how many times you, you point out that this was the first time a piece of research done, even like counting the kinds of plants and things that exist in our gardens. There is a toolkit, but we, we don't quite know what we've got in some cases.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think we kind of really are. You're right. We are standing in a way of understanding this. And I think parks are a good example that often they're much less biodiverse than anywhere else. But there are ways that we can kind of use science to adapt them, but without falling into a trap of kind of either sort of accepting kind of nature, red and tooth and claw. It is, you know, these are human landscapes, but there is a way, and you know, I, I'm really, really convinced of this that we can kind of find these ways and re- resolve some of these contradictions and see how things evolve. Because I think one of the messages of the book is that this is really fast changing kind of place, the city, not just for humans, there's a sort of cosmopolitanism in the human realm, but also in the plant and animal realm. And, you know, you stand still too long and things have changed very dramatically. So, yeah, I think there are pitfalls. We've constantly throughout history, I think, tried to green cities and often we've done it in ways that don't sort of maximize biodiversity or our own protection. We do it simply for aesthetic reasons. But there are ways that we can make things productive and we shouldn't be afraid of making those kind of experiments in a way and seeing what works and what doesn't. And I think go around the world and you find lots of different kind of examples of the ways that people are integrating nature in lots of different ways. So I think, you know, look at other cities, see how they're doing things. And there's ways of sort of sharing that knowledge and sharing the kind of the interest. But I think we should kind of get passionate about it and curious about it, because that's that's kind of what leads to political change.
1: And it's interesting how, whether you're a Singapore re-welcoming the otter or if you're a a London neighbourhood who's now championing the the arrival of different species of birds, that it becomes a kind of a tool for saying that you're doing well in the world and you're doing the right things. But as you went round the world, leave us with an example of something you have seen, a practical measure that people have taken in recent years that struck you as a a wise move in how we, we negotiate this wilding the city.
0: Well, I mean, there are lots of great examples. I think New York's really interesting because it, after Hurricane Sandy, this was a place that filled in a you know, vast sort of treasure trove of wetlands and marshes and sort of destroyed 90% of them. Now, there's the calls for restoring a functional ecosystem to New York after it's destroyed so much. And They're not the words of a kind of eco warrior. They're the words of the US Army Corps of Engineers who are desperate to kind of restore some of the marshes so on the sort of the edges of new york you're beginning to see the beginnings of a re-emergent kind of artificial green semi-aquatic wetlands place like newtown creek and queens which was the most polluted river in the world at one point the biggest sort of oil spill in u.s history is now this sort of post-industrial landscape which is becoming green around the edges where the kind of the bulkheads and piers and concrete is giving way to a kind of greener edge to the city. And I think that's where you find a really kind of inspiring change and a wonderful contrast between the kind of the skyscrapers of Manhattan and a kind of re-emerging marshland and an acknowledgement that our sort of Promethean phase of urbanization, where we thought we could kind of engineer our problems out of existence, is giving way to a new thing. So I'd locate my kind of fascination and interesting with it in places like that, where you're beginning to see a, a wilding, not a rewilding, but a kind of wilding on very human terms, but which has this kind of great kickback for nature as well as, a, as an interesting and fascinating kind of consequence of that.
1: Ben Wilson, thank you. Ben's new book, Urban Jungle, Wilding the City, is out now and is published by Penguin Random House. This is The Urbanist. Now, Philadelphia is known to many Americans as the country's founding city, but one of its more unheralded allures today is its park system, particularly the Wissahickon, a series of rugged hilly trails along a central creek that runs close to downtown. With cash-strapped Philadelphia struggling to invest in its parks, the upkeep is supported mostly by volunteers. Monocle's Chris Chermack visited the Wissahickon and spoke to some of the people determined to protect the future of this natural urban oasis. Let's
3: walk. All right, let's uh, go for a little walk. Yeah. <laughs> the Wissahickon is part of a 64-square-mile watershed. So That's all the land that drains into the Wissahickon Creek. Two-thirds of the Wissahickon watershed is in Montgomery County. One-third is in Philadelphia. And Wissahickon Trails, we steward the Montgomery County portion. Since 1957, we've protected just under 1,300 acres of open space in the upper part of the watershed. We have 12 nature preserves, 24 miles of trails. And the Green Ribbon Trail, which is what we're walking on right now, that is a 12-mile trail that starts up in Upper Gwynedd Township and goes down to connects with Forbidden Drive in Philly.
4: For Gail Farmer, executive director of Wissahickon Trails, it's the fact that the Wissahickon is so accessible that makes it unique. It gives people in Philadelphia a connection to nature that not too many urban dwellers have, and an appreciation of the importance of sustainability as a result.
3: People who walk this trail aren't what you'd call, like, you know, hikers. Um, but yeah, they walk the trail because it's, it's... They can walk there from their house, and it's beautiful, which is special. And I, and I think the trail's... Having this network of trails like we have twenty four miles and this Green Ribbon Trail that runs through a bunch of the municipalities, you know, it helps us as an organization wizakin trails do our work because we it gives us a constituency that, you know, has a personal connection with what we're trying to do.
4: A big part of Gale Farmer's job is improving the park's stormwater drainage, both to protect the area from flooding and to provide drinking water for the surrounding community. Some 350,000 Philadelphians rely on the Wissahickon for their drinking water. And attention to the issue of storm flooding really came to pass after two rounds of serious flooding in the city put a spotlight on the Wissahickon Creek.
3: You know, We had two storms, and one in 2020 and one in 2021. Our headquarters flooded twice, lots of people's homes, roads. I mean, the flooding was... Extremely damaging throughout the upper watershed. And prior to 2020, if I use the word stormwater management to any average community person, their eyes would glaze over, you know, boring. Post-2021, after Ida, I mean, people are talking about it. People are thinking about it. People are showing up about it. And so when people are talking about it, you know, the municipalities, the local elected officials... They pay attention. That's my experience.
4: And it's not just about drinking water and storm drainage either. Montgomery County to the north is currently working on a cross-county trail that would span some 17.5 miles from the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia all the way up north. Again, for Gail Farmer, anything that makes the creek and its trails more accessible is welcome and helps to shine a spotlight on her work.
3: To be successful and environmental sustainability. The one requirement is that people have to want it. You know, like we can't do it if people don't if it's not part of their aligned with their values. And the way that you that people connect with their values to the environment is by spending time outside. Good, you know, fun, personally meaningful time outside. So trails, you know, trails are essential to that. The thing that I think is really exciting about the Cross County Trail when it's complete is that it's like the Great Connector. You know, all these other major outdoor spaces and places. And, you know, that's a good thing.
4: A sprawling urban park is a special thing anywhere. If you don't have one in your city, you probably want one. A place to escape, to get lost in thought, in spite of the hustle and bustle of the city around you. And while there are a number of parks and trails across Philadelphia, it is the Wissahickon that most people will say is a big unheralded reason for moving here. Its countless trails offer the kind of rugged urban alternative that most major cities probably wish they had. For one thing, because it's not really a park.
5: Thinking of a park, a lot of us think of maybe something flat and open, and the Wissahickon is a forested gorge, uh, which is a really spectacular thing to have within an urban environment. So you come into the park and are whisked away.
4: This is Ruffian Titman, who heads up a group called Friends of Wissahickon, which spearheads volunteer efforts to clean up the park every week. And though it's done in partnership with the city of Philadelphia it's really the community that shines through here.
5: We have anywhere from 800 to 1,000 volunteers every year who come out. So we have staff that are kind of organizing and coming up with projects and um, training and networking with volunteers to get them out there uh, pretty much almost every day of the week. FOW is almost 100 years old. We'll be celebrating 100 years in 2024. Uh, So our founding in 1924 was really a group of concerned citizens who came together together. But that's a Philadelphia story. There's friends groups all over the city, um, staffed and unstaffed, that are working uh, to steward the city's parks in partnership.
4: This kind of community-first approach to sustainability is pretty common in Philadelphia. And while it's something to be commended, communities of volunteers across the city coming out to protect their local park systems and environment, it is also a sign of underinvestment.
5: I think there's a lot of data out there on what we spend per person on our parks and it's, it is a lot less than cities when you look at our, our city's budget. But we have a city um, that has a lot of need and that's a challenging story. We would love and a big push for whoever the next mayor is to prioritize parks and see them as really the asset and a solution to a lot of the challenges in the city.
4: Three quarters of America's 100 largest cities spend more money on their parks per capita than Philadelphia. The city spent an average of $73 per resident annually on its parks in the past three years, compared to a national average of $98. But where Philadelphia does rank well is when it comes to accessibility. Some 95% of residents have access to a park within 10 minutes of their home. And while investment may be a perennial problem, the one thing Philadelphia can count on more than most is for citizens to take matters into their own hands, to protect parks like the Wissahickon and clean up after themselves. At the end of the day, that's really what being a citizen and sustainability is all about. For Monocle, in Philadelphia, I'm Chris Chermack.
1: Monocle's Chris Chermack there, reporting from Philadelphia. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, make sure that you're subscribed to The Urbanist podcast so you get these episodes new every week. And why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Cola Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Cat Stevens with Wild World. Thank you for listening, city lovers.